Our reading this morning is from Luke chapter 1, verses 57 to 80, and the words will be on your screen. When it was time for Elizabeth to have her baby, she gave birth to a son. Her neighbours and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy, and they shared her joy. On the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to name him after his father, Zachariah. But his mother spoke up and said, no, he is to be called John. They said to her, there is no one among your relatives who has that name. Then they made signs to his father to find out what he would like to name the child. He asked for a writing tablet and to everyone's astonishment, he wrote, his name is John. Immediately, his mouth was opened and his tongue set free and he began to speak, praising God. All the neighbours were filled with awe, and throughout the hill country of Judea, people were talking about all these things. Everyone who heard this wondered about it, asking, what then is this child going to be? For the Lord's hand was with him. His father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people and redeemed them. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he said through his holy prophets of long ago. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our ancestors and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, my child, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for him, to give his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, by which the rising sun will come to us from heaven to shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the path of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he lived in the wilderness until he appeared publicly to Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Penny. Well, one of the questions that we have even right now is, does God care? Does God care? You know, one of the ways I know that is because we've been doing this survey and one of the top four results goes something like this. God is good, or the idea of God would be good news if he did something in the world if he answered prayer, if he helped out. We're going to explore that further in January. Uh, but, you know, I know that I'm feeling this question right now. I know it's what we're all asking because I'm feeling it as well, especially as we're back in this kind of quasi-lockdown with the northern beaches and things. And so the subject today is God's mercy, is does God care? That's the subject of this passage. Uh, I was reading an article in the weekend paper about a group called Rise Up Australia, which is a domestic violence uh, charity. And what they do is they furnish 
homes for people, for families and women coming out of domestic violence refuges in Australia. And the author in the article asked, it was an interview, they asked the person why, and they said this, they said, why do you do this? They said that we just have a need to stop feeling sick in the stomach over all the dreadful numbers. We have a need to stop feeling sick in the stomach over all the dreadful numbers. And they talked about the fact that three out of 10 assault hospitalizations uh, in Australia are domestic violence related. Close to 200 domestic homicide victims happen every two years in Australia. And one woman per week on average is killed in Australia by her partner or an ex-partner. They're sickened in the stomach by the, the dreadful numbers. And so they, what they do is they put out a call to their 600 Facebook followers. They fill up a removalist truck with furniture and then they come and empty it at a house. They, they furnish a house free of charge. That right there is the kind of mercy that this passage is saying God has for us. Mercy is defined as a concern expressed for someone in need. Concern expressed for someone in need. That kind of mercy in that group is the kind of mercy that God has for us. In fact, in um, verse 78 of that passage, says God has tender mercy. God has tender mercy. That word tender literally means gut or intestines. The idea is that God feels sick in his stomach about our situation. He sees the ugliness and the need for our rescue. And he has concern for us in need and he does something about it. And so... The subject for this morning is God's mercy. And I've got a couple of questions that we should ask about God's mercy from this passage. But before we do that, why don't we pray? God of mercy, help us see your mercy. Help us believe and trust in it. And help us to be thankful for it. Amen. Well, the first question I have for us this morning is this, is can I believe in a merciful God? Can I believe in a merciful God, in a God who cares? Uh, There's a few clues in this chapter to God's mercy. The first is probably most obvious, and that is that Elizabeth and Zechariah have a baby boy. Uh, But we need to understand a little bit of the background to just understand the mercy that's coming through here. Elizabeth and Zechariah, we're told earlier in the chapter, are old. And not only are they old, but they're barren. And apparently, Elizabeth has been barren her whole life. Any couple trying to fall pregnant knows the world of pain that they enter when they do that. And you can imagine, after a lifetime of trying and failing, of being barren, the heartbreak that comes alongside with that. Perhaps you don't have to imagine, perhaps you know. You can imagine for them, their hopes are dead. In fact, they're so dead, and this might be really interesting to you, they're so dead that this religious couple are doubting that God can intervene in their situation. That's how dead their hopes are. Uh, Zechariah is worshipping in the temple. Uh, He is there because he's a priest and an angel comes to him and he says, I'm going to change your situation. God's going to change your situation. And Zechariah says, are you sure? I don't know. You get there a sense, don't you, of the, the death of his hope, how jaded, how hardened his heart is. It's an angel. And I think actually there's this extraordinary message that Luke wants to 
get across to us here in this moment. Uh, I'm sure there are people watching this today, wherever you are, who are feeling like Zachariah and Elizabeth would have. That is, they might have said things like, you don't know what I've been through. It's impossible for me to believe that God is a God of mercy, a God of kindness, a God that answers my needs. Perhaps that's you. Perhaps you've felt that before, thought that before. But here's what Luke wants to say to us this morning. He says, if God can help a man who's a pastor, who's a priest, who's a minister, who's heard all the stories, he knows the stories backwards, and yet he's lived a life where he knows all the words, but he's never seen any action. If God can move a man who is apparently so dead on the inside to hope that when an angel, a messenger from, from God's own situation room, comes to him and says, God's going to do something about your situation. If God can move that man who said, I, I don't know, are you sure? If God can move him to believe in his mercy, if God can reveal his mercy to him, then he might just be able to do that for you, even today. God is merciful. And this story actually shows us in many ways, not just by the birth of the child and by this conversion of a clergyman, like one preacher once put it, but he actually shows, he reveals the evidence of his mercy even in a bigger way. It says in, in verse 67, I'm going to skip there here, it says that Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied. That's what happens after the birth of his son. Now, this is a really interesting moment, actually. And you might be aware of this, but we say this uh, many weeks in a row, but we say we often expect people are live streaming us, people are coming into our church who are exploring faith for the first time or who are new to faith. And, and actually little moments like this, and I haven't explained to you what it is yet, but I will in a moment. Little moments like this, uh, we just skip over when we're so used to it, but they're really important to capture what's going on in this story. It says here that Zechariah prophesied. What I want to explain to us this morning that might not be new for many of you is that the, the Bible is broken up into two halves. There's the Old Testament, which is the Jewish scriptures, and they're really ancient, so aptly named the Old Testament. Uh, then there's the New Testament, which was a bit written after many hundred years after the Old Testament had actually been closed. And the reason the Old Testament had been closed, it had been finished, it was pretty much a bound book by about 200 BC, was because for hundreds of years, God had not spoken to his people, or at least that's how it seemed to his people. God had not spoken. He'd not done anything in the world. They were still, they were waiting. And so they closed this book of hopes and dreams up. But then the New Testament is written precisely because God speaks again. And he speaks fully and finally in the person and work of Jesus Christ. But even before Jesus is born, right here in this moment, there are ripples that God is speaking. And that's why you, Luke uses this, uses this word prophesied. He says, Zechariah prophesied. That is something that hadn't happened in hundreds of years. And it's this evidence of God's mercy because God is speaking to his people. Again, to prophesy means simply to turn up and to tell us what God is thinking about a situation and what God is going to do about a situation. And so this little moment, this little prophecy actually isn't a little moment just for Elizabeth and for Zechariah and for her family and her friends. This is no little occasion in the world. 
God is not just merciful to an old and barren couple, but to an old and barren world, devoid of life, devoid of meaning, devoid of hope. To a doubting world, God speaks. God comes. That's actually the biggest clue so far in this chapter that God is merciful. God is speaking. He's coming. This is illustrated really insightfully and wonderfully in C.S. Lewis's novel, uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, as a part of the Narnia series. And there's a little moment where the children, the sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, uh, in this world of Narnia, encounter a beaver who talks to them. It's strange, but it's great. And he says to them, they say, Aslan is on the move. Perhaps perhaps he has already landed. They say Aslan is on the move. Perhaps he has already landed. And Lewis continues, and he writes about how the children feel. He says this. He says, And now a very curious thing happened. None of the children who knew Aslan was, more than any of you or I do, but the moment the beaver had spoken these words, everyone felt quite different. Perhaps it has something Perhaps it has sometimes happened to you in a dream that someone says something which you don't understand, but in the dream it feels as if it has some enormous meaning, either a terrifying one which turns the whole dream into a nightmare, or else a lovely meaning, too lovely to put into words, which makes the dream so beautiful that you remember it all your life and are always wishing you could get into that dream again. It was like that now, as the name of Aslan at the name of Aslan, each one of the children felt something jump on its inside. Edmund felt a sensation of mysterious horror. Peter felt suddenly brave and adventurous. Susan felt as if some delicious smell or some delightful strain of music had just floated by her. And Lucy got the feeling you have when you wake up in the morning and realize that it's the beginning of holidays or the beginning of summer. Aslan is on the move, perhaps has already landed. This story, this uh, picture in Aslan, and in fact the, the story that we have of Zechariah mirrors uh, this situation. Sorry, Narnia, that little moment mirrors what's happening in the story of Zechariah and this prophecy. There's this situation where God is being at work in the world. God's begun to be at work in the world. And there's this sense of anticipation, uh, not just in their child, but in the birth of Jesus. And, and God is not just at work in the world or preparing his coming, but the truth is, is that he's come. In fact, perhaps he's already landed. But more than just Narnia there mirroring, mirroring the situation, it mirrors actually the feelings that we have when we hear that actually God might be at work in the world. I don't know what your feelings are like when you hear that God has turned up. What do you feel when you hear that that might be true? Do you have a sense of horror? Do you have a sense of bravery and adventure? Do you have a sense of delight or a sense of excitement? You know, whatever our feelings are inside of us, it raises the question why those feelings are there. And I think those feelings are there because those feelings show us how we understand why God is turning up. That's what those feelings show. You know, depending on how we understand what it means for God to turn up in our world, will determine our feelings. Uh, this, this brings me to my next question, which is, why do we need his mercy? Why do we need God's mercy? How do we understand God's mercy? 
there are two types of people in the world. There are those who ignore a call coming in from an unknown number, and there are those who pick up a call coming from an unknown number. I wonder which one you are. You know, many of us, the running joke, of course, is that if you don't recognize an unknown number, uh, and if you don't answer an unknown number, it's because you've got something to hide. You know, if you're waiting for something, if you've ordered a delivery, if you're expecting some good news or some bad news, uh, it doesn't matter what the number looks like when it comes through, you'll take it. But if you've got something to hide, or if you're a little bit busy or distracted, I'll make it a little bit fair. If you've got something else going on for you, uh, you don't touch that call, do you? Or some of us don't. That actually helpfully illustrates why John is significant in this story. Because John helps us understand why God is calling. John puts a, a name to the number. He puts a reason to the number. He helps us see who's calling and understand why they're calling so that we'll pick up. That's John's little role here. You know, I've often wondered, you know, we've got the birth of Jesus Christ, our Savior, the Savior of the world, and then we've got the birth of this boy. You know, why does his story get remembered? How could it be remembered? It's because he tells us who's calling and why. That's why John is important. Um, recently, I was reading one commentator on these accounts. He said, you know, imagine if we didn't have any distractions in our world. You know, go back to Zachariah's time. Imagine if there was no TV, no cricket to distract you from the world. Imagine if there's no Facebook, social media, you know, the hourly news cycle. What would you spend your time thinking about? And he says, actually, you know, and a lot of the world today don't have those distractions, and they do think about the world at large. They think about life. They sit back. Perhaps they're able to not, not to be merely philosophical, but to question the world and why it is the way it is. And in fact, they might have the question that much of history has had, which is, does God care? And they might have the question, what is wrong with the world? More specifically, what is wrong with the world? Ancient Israel experienced this. Zechariah knew what was wrong with the world, and that's what his prophecy talks about. If we have a look at it more closely, we see here uh, Zechariah notices all sorts of things wrong with the world, especially for ancient Israel. They needed redemption. That is, they're in slavery. They had enemies. They had people who hated them. They experienced oppression and slavery and hatred and physical oppression. And Zechariah says, actually, even more common than that, all of us experience death. You know, I was at uh, the BP service station just down the road from me the other day, and uh, one of the guys in the queue just happened, he was really honest with me, he happened to mention that he was going to a funeral. And I said I was sorry for him. And he actually shared with me, yeah, it sucked. And he actually used a little expletive to describe death. And in that moment, I thought, it's very honest of him. But I honestly thought, actually, death deserves more than a small expletive, doesn't it? We should be overwhelmed. What is this evil thing that takes away our life? It should overwhelm us. Death is something that is wrong with the world. Zechariah goes on, and it's there in the passage just above it. He says, often, actually, we have an experience before death of living in darkness. We live in darkness. And that term is actually just describing the kind of metaphysical uh, problem that we feel of frustration, of meaninglessness in life. 
it's used elsewhere to describe what somebody in their old age looking back at their life might feel about the worthlessness of their accomplishments. They sit in darkness. Have you ever experienced that? We need to be saved from all of these things. Our world is dark and it experiences death and oppression and injustice. But there's something else that Zechariah points to. He says we need the forgiveness of sins. God has given to his people, he writes, the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. That's what we really need. And I might describe sin this morning of kind of Zachariah's problem. What was it? It was to doubt that God can intervene in the world. It's to doubt that God cares. It's to doubt that God can do something. And that is to belittle God. That is to ignore him. That is to actually put our own human thoughts and our own ideas above and beyond his heavenly thoughts. It's to make ourselves bigger than God. It's to make ourselves God. Well, how does God rescue us then? How does God solve our world's problems? How does he show us that he cares? Well, in Zechariah's prophecy, it's this beautiful poem where we have all these pictures of how God is going to save us. There's three in particular I want to draw your attention to really quickly. They help us see the fullness of God's mercy for us. The first is, uh, how does God show us his mercy? That's our next question. The first is that God gives us a horn of salvation. That is, God shows us that he is strong that he has strength to deliver us from our situation. A horn in ancient times uh, represented power. It doesn't mean much to us today. It's, it's actually talking about an animal horn, not a horn that you might blow at Christmas or something. A horn symbolizes authority. You can imagine on the first line of your defense or the first line even of your attack in an army would be an animal with horns on it. A broken horn symbolizes defeat. A strong horn symbolizes power and authority over all your other animals. And God says, I'm going to give you strength. And the reference here, of course, is to Jesus Christ. And Luke wants to make the point to us, our strength lies in the strength of Jesus Christ. That's where we can see God's mercy in the strength of him. We do not need to search for another source of power or deliverance. There is one horn, Jesus Christ. That's what Luke wants to say. But what is it about Jesus? Well, then Luke gives us this next metaphor that Jesus is a rising sun or he brings light to the world. John Calvin, the Protestant reformer of the 16th century, he says this, these words show that without Christ, there is no life-giving light in the world, but everything is covered by the appalling darkness of death. What Luke is telling us here is actually that Jesus is the answer to all our problems, especially for those who understand that we sit in darkness. Uh, we, Jesus is the answer. He's the life and light of the world. Uh, but then there is one final little po poetry, piece of poetry that Luke gives us, and that's this. We're told, uh, it's not there actually on the screen, but we're told that Jesus is our redemption. He's our redeemer. And at the end of the passage, it says Jesus is our peace. He's bringing us home. And the thing about a redeemer, to understand that metaphor, to be redeemed, is to save someone at the expense of somebody else 
or to bring someone home at a cost to yourself. Uh, You'll remember at the beginning of uh, this talk, I mentioned that group called uh, Rise Up Australia. And there was a line in that article that struck me about how they work in the world. It said this, it talked about the cost that comes with giving these people a home, furnishing a home. And there was this line in the article that put it beautifully. It said, uh, they say every day, a few hours after lunch, every day in Australia, a few hours after lunch, the removals truck is empty and the empty home is full. The removals truck is empty and the empty home is full. That's what redemption is. That's what Jesus does for us. The strength of the world, the one who is ultimately powerful, becomes weak so that we might become strong. The light of the world, the one who gives us meaning in our darkness, becomes darkness. In fact, goes to the point of death. The one who is life takes on death that we might have life and light. You have to understand this morning the extent of God's mercy, the extent of the expense of God's mercy. Christ Jesus himself, God himself, emptied himself that you might have life and life to the full. That's his mercy. That's how he shows us his mercy. That's the tender mercy of our God. It's expressed in Jesus. Why don't I pray for us? Let me pray. Oh God of all power and all mercy, we thank you that you know and have experienced yourself the darkness of this life, the weakness of this life, the helplessness of this life. You've experienced the oppression in our world, the injustices of our world. But we thank you in the coming of your Son to us. Not only do we know that we've got a God who feels us, who sympathizes with us, who empathizes with us, but we have a God who is strong. We have a God who is light. And more than that, we have a God who gives up strength and light to show us that he's a God of mercy, to say to us, welcome home, to bring us home to you. We thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.